This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, and William. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. Audrey Brumbach is a physician, a scientist, and an assistant professor of neurology at the University of Texas. During our conversation, Audrey talks about her interest in autism what we know about autism today, and how her lab studies brain physiology to better understand the autistic brain. The brain is endlessly complex, and autism has long been a mystery. People like Audrey are working to simultaneously increase our knowledge and decrease the stigma of the roughly 2% of the human population, tens of millions of people who are autistic. All right, Audrey, well, thank you for uh, bringing me into the lab, and uh, it's great to meet you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. It's great to be here. You as well. Um, I So we were talking a little bit before we started recording. I always like to start by getting, you know, some background detail as to how people become kind of who they are. I know your expertise is, is autism specifically. Um, what's the journey there? Was Do you have personal family interactions with autism? What, what drew you to the field in the first place? Yeah. So, you know, I I like to think that it was all sort of evidence-based that you know the, the, the journey that I took <laughs> and sort of, you know that it was very logical um but yeah of course like there's always like a personal side to things sure. um and so yeah I you know I basically went through um pediatric neurology training um and you know had learned to be a doctor and learned to be a scientist um and then it was time to sort of choose you know what what was going to be um, my focus. And I really felt very undifferentiated. Like I was interested in everything. Yeah. Um, and so I, I started thinking about my skill set and um, it, I'm an electrophysiologist. So I like to, I, I can record the activity of neurons and record their electrical activity, um, which is sort of, you know, that's how brain cells communicate with each other. Yeah. And so I thought, well, what, what disease or what, you know, what disorder, what group of disorders could use a good electrophysiologist? <laughs> um, and, you know, epilepsy is sort of the one that comes to mind for people since that's sort of electrical storms in the brain. Um, but I thought, you know, they already have a bunch of great electrophysiologists in that field. Like, they don't need me. Yeah. Um, and so I started thinking about, you know, what are the disorders where the brain is structurally okay, um, you know, we take a picture with an MRI, it looks fine, mm. but clearly the function is different. Yeah. And so, you know, these are really the disorders that are kind of at that interface between psychiatry and neurology, where the function is different and we don't quite understand why. Yeah. Um, those are the disorders where we need to understand, you know, the electrical activity of those neurons and how it's different. Mm. Um, and so that was the logical, you know, rationale yeah. um, for choosing autism. The the personal side is that, you know, nowadays when a child uh, 
is acting differently um, in a particular way, um, that's flagged by a pediatrician. The child is evaluated and often given a diagnosis of, of autism. And it's this kind of known entity. Um, but I have people in my family who, um, back in the day, that wasn't sort of a known quantity. Yeah. And so, um, you know, people in my family have basically lived their lives unaware that this is why they're different, um, that there's a name for it and they're not alone. Yeah. Um, and, and so those people are the ones I think about, you know, when I'm seeing my patients and I, I see characteristics, you know, that are similar and, you know, I just, yeah, I just want to give them a hug. <laughs> yeah. 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 For people, I, I think autism generally has gotten more mainstream in the past 20 or 30 years in the U S than it probably had been prior to that for people who are mostly unaware of what that word means. How, how do you describe it, describe it for people who, who ask you? Yeah. Um, I think that my first experience with autism, like in the, in sort of public, the public view was Rain Man. Yes. Yeah. I think <laughs> yeah. a lot of people too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that when, I, when I am evaluating it, uh, usually it's a child. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you what I'm going to, what I ask the parents, but, you know, I go through a whole list of questions and, you know, really sort of find out about the child. And then at the end, if I, you know, if the child has autism, I will tell the parents that. But the other thing I, I try to tell the parents is that I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Yeah. I'm just using a, a specific word to describe it. Um, and so, so what are the types of things that would lead somebody to have a diagnosis of autism? Um, autism, it's called a disorder. Um, and I think that we're sort of starting to appreciate that different doesn't necessarily mean bad. Yeah. Um, and so the types of differences that I see um, in kids um, is that things that require... Um, uh, multiple processing multiple streams of information at the same time are hard. And when those things are hard, they are not the preferred thing to be doing. Um, and so in my experience, social interactions are hard. It takes integrating visual information, auditory information, you know, not just the the exact words that are being said or the exact motions that you're seeing, but the the nuances and the the implications of you know the social uh, cues that um, that you and I learn just implicitly by experiencing the world. Um, in my experience, for for my patients who have autism, those sorts of things are really challenging um, to be able to look at somebody and listen to them at the same time and be thinking about how am I going to respond because you've got to process this in real time. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, how to interpret facial expressions, body language, you know, that when that is challenging, um, it becomes the non-preferred activity. Yeah. And so in, in, in my mind, um, 
you know, autism sort of billed as a, a social communication disorder. Um, I think of it as a, as a processing disorder. I think of it as a difference in how the brain just processes information and how it makes some types of activities harder um, and some types of activities easier. Mm. And so just, you know, based on that alone, it's easy to see how one would end up engaging in the behaviors that are easier and not the ones that are harder. Sure. Just like any of us do. Yeah. 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 And I, I assume for to get an official diagnosis of being autistic, what's the process that generally is given to children to be able to make firmly a, a, sci a scientific diagnosis there? Yeah. It's interesting you use the word scientific um, because it's definitely uh, an art. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so, you know, if you... If you have a fever, um, I can uh, take a sample of your blood, um, you know, take a chest x-ray and, you know, collect data, um, objective data that can tell me the cause of that fever. And so I can say, you know, you don't just have a fever, you have, um, you know, you have a blood infection. Um, and here's the treatment for that. With autism and many of these neuropsychiatric disorders, we're really still at the fever stage where we can say, we can sort of describe what we're seeing and use a single term to, you know, to, to diagnose that. Um, but it doesn't really say anything about what is underlying it. Yeah. And so what's the, so for autism, what's, what's, what is the fever? What's the, what, what's the version of that? What are the things that make us say the word autism? Um, so it's, it's really, um, first, you have to just understand where the child is at developmentally. Um, if, uh, well, I'll back up and say the, the psychiatrists <laughs> made a cookbook um, uh, for diagnosing psychiatric disorders. It's called the DSM. And we're in the fifth edition, so it's evolved over time in terms of uh, how we're defining disorders. And the way that you diagnose these disorders is you look at the checklist of symptoms, and if the person meets all those criteria, you say that they have that disorder. I I'm simplifying it, but that's yeah. essentially it. Okay. And so for autism, what are those checkboxes? Um, the first category is social communication. Um, and so that involves um, challenges with uh eye contact, reading people's faces, um, using gestures to express yourself. I'm sitting here as I'm sitting here, I'm gesticulating. Um, being able to, um, you know, appropriately respond when somebody else is injured, you know, to sort of have, have what we call a typical response to that. Um, to be able to, you know, approach and engage other people, in what we call a normal way. Yeah. Um, so that's social communication. The other category, there's only two categories. The other category is uh, what we call restricted and repetitive interests and behaviors, which is a big mouthful. <laughs> um, and basically what that, and that encompasses is um, uh, a desire for things to be the way you expect them to be. So, um, you know, if I have a routine and then something happens where we deviate from that routine, 
that is really hard um, for a lot of people with autism. Um, you know, and for a little kid, that that means meltdowns. That means tantrums. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, the other part of that is um, uh, the interests part is really um, being really into something. Um, you know, having uh, the Paris uh, subway map, uh, you know, uh, memorized, even though you've never been to Paris. Um, just having, you know, exquisite knowledge and interest in one thing. And then the other component that goes into this category is sensory differences. So being over-sensitive or over-reactive to sounds um, you know, we think of the child who covers their ears when the blender is turned on. Mm. Um, and then this also includes sensory seeking behaviors. So, um, we often see that, um, people with autism really, um, it's very satisfying to have things sort of line up and to look at things in sort of what we would call peculiar ways, mm -hmm. up close, out of the corner of your eye. Um, and so th that's just sort of a sampling of the types of things that, that we're looking for. The important thing to remember, though, is that this is all taken in the context of where that child is at developmentally. So, for instance, um, if I have... Um, if I am only, if I'm, you know, 44 years old and I can only speak and understand 10 or 12 words, you would certainly not hold me to the same standard for being able to engage um, appropriately, you know, in social behaviors, for instance. And so it's similar with kids. We have to really understand, you know, where they're at so that we can take these checkboxes that we're thinking about um, and, and ask, is that out of proportion to, you know, the child's developmental age? Yeah. 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 When, when we're just speaking population wise, what roughly speaking in the U S for example, how many people in the country would you say roughly fit into that category that you just described as being technically autistic? Yeah. So, um, I think one in a hundred uh, for sure. Um, and probably, probably one in 50, you wow. know, if we really, uh, if we really tallied it. Yeah. Um, so just for, for context, um, epilepsy, uh, so recurrent unprovoked seizures that happens in about 1% of people. Hmm. And so, um, they have, you know, it, you know, you think about like, who do you know, that, you know, you know, has epilepsy, you know, you might know one person, yeah. um, but there's probably more out there that you interact with that you just aren't aware because they're well controlled on their medicine. Yeah. Um, similarly, um, you might know one person where you say, oh, yeah, I know, I know somebody that comes to mind when I think about autism. There's probably a lot of other people who are, you know, who have sort of learned how to you know, function in our society. Um, and so you're not necessarily aware 
of the challenges they have. Yeah. What's our best understanding of the influence of, of genes versus environment in, in terms of the people who actually exhibit these symptoms? Yeah. So this is, um, this is an active area of research. I bet, yeah. So um, the, the, the sort of take-home point um, is that uh, when we look at uh, you know, large numbers of people who have autism and we compare that to family members who don't have autism or general population of people who don't have autism, we, we have found, we meaning the field, um, that there's about 100 genes hmm. that if you have a, a change in that gene, that you have a really high chance of having autism. Hmm. Uh, there's no one uh, gene that gives you like a 100% chance of yeah. having autism. Um, but we see that there's about 100 genes that are sort of enriched in the population and um, and so when we, we do genetic testing as part of our evaluation, um, and, you know, we often see people who have changes in those genes. Hmm. How about in terms of the, the parents, are there any separate from the genes is, is, are there any other, um, factors that might be at play in producing kids that have autism? For example, late pregnancies in, uh, for women or for men? Or, or is there anything else we know that would increase the probability of having kids that would potentially be autistic? Yeah. So I think one, as you bring up parental age, yeah. um, the, I think one important um, thing to know is that genetic doesn't necessarily mean her hereditary. Sure. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of changes that go on um, in the genetic material as, you know, sperm meets egg and you start dividing into two, four, eight, 16 cells that, you know, are unique to that person. Um, and those what we call de novo or new mutations are really the, the vast majority of the changes that we see in genes. They're, they're usually new. Hmm. And so... What are the things that maybe would increase your risk for having those new mutations? Um, and and one that has been, I think, pretty well established is parental age. Um, so what's the age? <laughs> you know, what's the cutoff? Um, there's no answer to that. Uh, it's sort of, you know, sort of a smooth increase over time. Hmm. Um, and I... And, you know, as somebody who had my first child at 39.9 you know, <laughs> years old, um, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm acutely aware of, you know, the biological clock ticking and, you know, what is that going to mean for my child? Um, when it comes to an individual, it's really hard to say, There's, this is an older parent, they have a child with autism, there's a link there. Yeah. It really is very different than talking about a whole population of people. Gotcha. The uh, another component to this that I, I uh, want to get your thoughts on is just related to how you view what would be a socially acceptable or compassionate way to deal with individuals who are exhibiting these symptoms. Right. Um, I, I think there might be a historic tendency to view just different types of people as being difficult, as being yeah. socially incapable, as being socially unpleasant, intentionally adversarial. Um, 
how do you view that? I know you mentioned earlier that when you know you you tended to have a reaction to want to give people like that a hug, uh, <laughs> but but it, if you can't speak to what you would articulate to the greater population as to what you think is a, a rational and um, a kind way to deal with individuals who who tend who who have autistic tendencies or who are autistic. Yeah, there's two two things that come to mind when you ask that question. One um, is how we used to diagnose people with autism as having mental retardation. Um, We assume that people are less cognitively capable than they are. Um, You know, if you have somebody who isn't motivated to participate in your little IQ test (laughs) the way a typically developing child might be, then that child's not going to do well on that test because they don't really care about your stupid test. (laughs) And so they're going to score low. And then you're going to say, oh, well, therefore, this child has mental retardation or intellectual disability is the term we we use now. Um, And so I think that that alone um, is huge. Assume that the person can understand everything you're saying and just talk to them like a real person. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think that for in general, um, giving the person the benefit of the doubt that they can understand you, um, is huge. Mm. Uh, and not to assume that a person has low intelligence just because they're not able to express their intelligence in a typical way. Yeah. Um, the other part of this, um, is really how we conceptualize autism and who doesn't fit into that category. So when we think of autism and how autism was sort of originally defined was based on little eight-year-old boys, (laughs) Um, little eight-year-old white boys. And so what I find is that there are a lot, and just in my personal experience, plus in the literature, you know, just from scientific studies, that a lot of girls are not being diagnosed appropriately. Mm. And people who are not white are not being diagnosed appropriately. Um, And so I think that, you know, so for instance, um, you asked about kindness and empathy. And the thing that I think about is the girls that I've diagnosed in my practice who are like in middle school, um, who come because of school troubles. And, you know, they, they probably have a diagnosis of anxiety and ADHD. And, you know, you, you take the history, you talk to them, and you get to know them, and, oh, you have autism. And it's, it's interesting to, to feel the pushback that I get from people about that, from other family members. Mm-hmm. Um, because, well, no, she's just weird. No, she's just annoying. Um, and and so I guess I'm saying this to say, if you're talking to somebody <laughs> who's annoying, <laughs> um, who's sort of irritating you and you can't quite figure out why, just think about, you know, just stop and think like, maybe this person isn't doing this on purpose. Maybe their brain just processes information in a totally different way. Yeah. And this is 
this is how they are. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense in terms of just general dealings with other human beings, whether they have, whether they come to you stamped with, you know, a label that says autism or not. Yeah. Um, sort of having that empathy for, for other people and sort of what might be layered on top of them, yeah. you know, in terms of challenges. And the, the typical, right, the, the typical assessment of like, this is an annoying person. It, it does that tend to, to be, they can't look me in the eye when they're talking to me. They, don't seem to be responding to me in a, in a classically normal human way. What, what tend to be those sort of triggers that make quote unquote ordinary people get annoyed with individuals that you see who are autistic? Um, so I think that, um, I think that it, that's a tough question to answer. (laughs) I think that I think about, um, being able to read the room <laughs> yeah. um, and sort of know when it's appropriate to say certain things and when it's not. Um, you know, if you have a challenge with that, if you if it's hard for you to tell how people are feeling just by looking at them, then you're probably going to end up saying some things that aren't, you know, necessarily appropriate for those situations. Yeah. Um, maybe you're really interested in something. And so that's what you like to talk about. And because you're so into it, you might talk somebody's ear off about it and not sort of catch the subtle cues that their ears are full. They're done. They, they, you know, they want to end the conversation, but, and are giving you cues, but you can't read them. Yeah. Um, Those are kind of the things that come to mind. Yeah. 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 And I, I I think, it's like so many other, so many uh, different personality qualities that we we think as though there's this little person inside that individual's brain who is making them the way they are, and they're intentionally trying to annoy you with their eccentric behavior. Uh, and I, I find it's always a challenge to try to frame how that person might actually what might actually really be causing this person's behavior that's uh outside of outside of the norm or is is difficult i think for for most people to understand i do think as soon as you are able to begin to put yourself in their brain Mm -hmm. and i think some people are better at this than others you i bet you are extraordinarily good at doing this because you have this very empathic reaction to people who have that tendency um other people who are perhaps a little bit higher stress or just don't have the uh, uh, such a tolerance for personality differences, I think react very negatively towards people who are like that. And so I, I think, uh, yeah, just developing a, a different mindset or or tools to begin to look at those people mm-hmm. differently might be helpful in treating them with uh, a, a degree of uh, increased humanity or something like that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so we're in your lab here and yeah. I would love to talk about what one you do here and two, <laughs> what, what the, what the big long-term goals are that you, that you're working on or that you think are areas of promise for people who are autistic. Yeah. So, um, I'm not trying to cure anything. Yeah. I think I should just say <laughs> straight up, um, what I, what I'm trying to do is, what any what any doctor does is people come to you and they say, doctor, I'm having trouble with 
this thing. Can you help me? Um, and the doctor tries to figure out how best to help them. Give them, you know, if you've got an infection, we give you an antibiotic. If you've got a headache, we give you, you know, a, a Tylenol. Um, and so the focus of my research is really on um, symptom management. So, uh, you know, you have somebody who is experiencing difficulty engaging in conversation, perhaps because it's hard to just kind of hold all this information <laughs> in mind and process what's coming in at you and process what you're supposed to be saying and how you're supposed to be saying it. And so one of the types of, uh, 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 of processes that mm -hmm. goes on during that is called working memory. It's, it's um, you know, if I tell you a phone number, you're able to spit it right back out to me. And then you forget it. It doesn't go into long-term memory. Yeah. But just for, you know, for a few seconds there, it's sort of in your, on your sort of mental chalkboard. Yep. And then it gets erased. Um, and what, so one of the, one of the symptoms that I would like to help people with is that, um, is that sort of mental chalkboard and being able to use it, um, you know, for good. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, other symptoms, um, sensory hypersensitivities, um, you know, that make it hard to go out in public, um, sleep disorders that make it hard to, you know, have refreshing sleep at night hmm. so you can function during the day. So that's, that's the, the, the goal is really to have people come to me and say, you know, here are the things I'm having the most difficulty with. And I can say, oh, good, <laughs> we have a treatment <laughs> for that. Because right now we don't. Um, and so I told you that there's like a hundred, you know, different reasons to have autism that we know of right mm -hmm. now. Um, and I'm using that sort of reasons to have autism terminology a little flippantly. But, you know, there's a lot of different um, ways that uh, a person can end up with this thing we call autism. And so the, the strategy that I'm going for is to not necessarily try to solve each of those individual issues. Yeah. So gene one, gene two, gene three, but rather to ask, what do those have in common? What is it that sort of forms that final common pathway to brain function? And the, the, the answer that I have is that that's the brain circuitry. That's the function of, of brain circuits. Hmm. And so I see myself as somebody who is mapping out brain circuits, mapping them onto symptoms and different brain functions so that we can say, you're having trouble with working memory. That lives in this circuit. And then to understand how those cells are different and what we can do to change the activity of those neurons so that the circuit becomes more functional. Gotcha. This, I think, goes to uh, maybe a, sli a slightly deeper area of, of empathy for, these, uh, for people who are autistic that we were, we were just talking about, which is it, it, what it is like to be, to have a mind like this, what, what, what it's like for individuals uh, to go through life with an autistic brain. Uh, and an, an autistic experience. And I would love for you to speak to that just in terms, as you said, I think you, you're, you're not trying to cure anything, but I think 
there has to be an element of an attempt to heal or improve someone's difficulties or hardships. Um, I think it can be really hard to understand anyone who is not yourself, but m much <laughs> less somebody who is, uh, has a, a, you know, to some degree, a significantly different brain than, than, the, than the norm. Um, I know that's a, a long <laughs> way of asking the, just the general question, but what is being autistic generally, especially, especially hard for, for people who are living that way? Is it, uh, do they not view it as being difficult because they don't know any different? What, what's your sense of, um, the help if they want any that, that right. people like this tend to tend to come to you desiring? Yeah. So there's a saying, uh, in, in the field of autism that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Mm -hmm. So each person is unique. It's, we can't generalize based on one person to the rest of, you know, people with autism. And so, um, so that being said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, and now I'm trying to remember <laughs> your question. <laughs> just the, the general gist of whether you think it is particularly difficult to be somebody who uh, is living with a mind like this. Do, yeah. do, they, do they tend to have uh, just a, a, a hard internal life because of the way their mind works? Or what, what's your general thinking on that? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, what the the sort of general theme that we're talking about is neurodiversity. Yes. Um, and, you know, where do you draw the line between uh, what we're going to call typical or normal and atypical or not normal? Um, and, you know, that is clearly a moving target and depends on our culture and, you know, our understanding of biology. And so... Um, I don't think that autism is a categorical diagnosis. And okay. what I mean by that is um, it's not binary. It's not um, like pregnancy where you're either pregnant or you're not. Yeah. Um, I think that the idea of autism being a spectrum, I think that idea of spectrum goes beyond people who carry that diagnosis and into the general population. Um and so what is it, you know, what, is it hard? Like, do people even need treatment, you know? Um, and I think that the, the answer is partly um, how our, about our culture and how we, um, you know, how we understand and empathize with people with autism yeah. um, and how our society is set up to make things, you know, it's to make things harder. Um, you know, there's a, there's a really, um, you know, big emphasis on being able to, you know, chat like this, um, uh, you know, for job interviews, you know, like that's a huge part of how a person decides whether they're going to hire you or not is that interview. Yeah. Um, when the job you're applying for may not require that. Um, and, the, the special abilities that you do have might not sort of be enough to overcome that person's bias against you because you didn't do great in the interview. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there's, 
I, I feel very, um, I'm very interested in and um, want to really understand more about how our society is built and how we might change it for the better to be more inclusive. Yeah. Um, I think I imagine that there are a lot of things we could be doing better that wouldn't be that hard to implement that would make life a lot more, um, you know, typical for people with autism, you know, they, so that they wouldn't feel like they don't belong. Yeah. I, I think about this, right. For, for people who are depressed or severely depressed, they tend to know that something's wrong and they tend to be interested in trying to find options to improve their day-to-day moment-to-moment experience of life. Do you find something similar to that in people that come to you and that you work with who are autistic or is there less of a motivation to kind of change the nature of their mind? So, um, most of the kids, most of the people that I work with currently are kids right? and they're young kids. And so it's really the parents' concerns um, that I'm working with. Um, I do have a good number of teenagers in my practice as well. Yeah. Um, and I follow a lot of people with autism on social media to keep my finger on the pulse of the conversation. Um, but I think that, uh, so the question is, you know, how much do people want to change how their brains work? Yeah. Is that is that even, you know, something... Uh, that they're, that they want. And I think that, I think that when it comes to being a teenager, um, I think that in my experience, not knowing why you're different, not knowing, you know, why you've had, why people have been, you know, mean to you and bullied you and um, that that's, that's the hard part. My, my experience with, you know, teenagers in this day and age is that, you know, once they have that diagnosis and can then sort of educate themselves and reach out to other people who are like them and learn and, you know, have, um, you know, sort of engage in that community, um, then, like the majority of the issues sort of almost melt away because you have a, an explanation for why you're different. Yeah. Um, beyond that, um, I do think that there's, um, you know, people want to be able to go to college and, you know, concentrate and, you know, do well in classes. And so, you know, treatment for things like ADHD is really, you know, people are motivated to get that treated. Um, there are, yeah, I guess I'm, sorry, I'm a little rambling here, but yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking yeah. about, um, you know, what does it, what does a treatment for, what does sort of self-treatment look like? Um, cause I think that's also sort of the question is how, um, you know, are people seeking out sort of alternative, ways of doing things. And I think that the answer is yes. I mean, I think about all the kids I knew growing up who played Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Um, you know, kids who um whose main sort of way that they interact with other people is centered around some kind of structured activity. 
so that you're able to be around other people and interact, but there's not that pressure to engage in two-way conversation the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, um, you know, in that sense, I think that people, you know, just like anybody, you know, you seek out um, the things that are going to meet your needs that are sort of the easiest ways to do that. Um, and I think, you know, things like playing games and, uh, you know, having structured activities is one way to to do that. It's sort of a, a therapeutic option, yeah. if you, you know. Yeah. I used to, I think I mentioned this before we started recording, that I, I worked in the Bay Area for almost 10 years in, in the tech world. And uh, you don't have to live there long to learn that there are a lot of the brilliant technologists that create a lot of the companies that end up changing mm -hmm. the country and the world are somewhere on that spectrum. Mm -hmm. they, they have an incredible ability to program or deal with math and when directed in the right way can lead to brilliant businesses yeah. and, and, ch and changes in technology. Um, I don't know if this is something that you read about or ha have researched, but if you know anything about um, you know, individuals who have come out as being on the spectrum or being autistic who kind of fall into that camp. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that is, that is a way to um, at least let it be known how productive so many of these citizens have the potential to yeah. be and, and already have been. Um, so I guess my general question is, do, is that something that you're familiar with? And um, if so, are there any names or companies that kind of come to mind for you as being in that wheelhouse of, of, of people who have dealt with some of this, uh, some form of autism, but have, have ended up becoming notable citizens? Yeah, I think, um, you know, history is sort of littered with the, the solitary scientist yeah. who, you know, tinkered away and made some great discovery, um, you know, who was sort of odd and considered, you know, um, a strange person by the rest of the, the community. Um, I can't think of off the top of my head of sort of any specific um, people, you know, in tech. Um, but, you know, I, uh, the idea that, um, that autism is all negative is yeah. really, this is why I don't really like talking about it as a disorder, but rather a difference. Um, because, you know, there, there are many things like this that you're talking about that many people with autism can do that people without autism can't. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's why I really love the idea of celebrating neurodiversity. Um, so that, we were really including everybody um, in our society um, and celebrating their strengths and helping them with their challenges. Yeah. How yeah. do you think about the, when people say the spectrum, this is uh, something in just the cultural lexicon mm -hmm. that I feel like has become very popular in the last 10 years or so. Um, I, I suppose what is meant by that, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, is the spectrum between having some form of mild Asperger's Asperger's to being technically autistic. Uh, what's the difference? How do you think about that? What, what, do, what do people mean when they start talking about the, the, the spectrum scale? Yeah. So I don't really, I don't really understand why we call it a spectrum disorder. Yeah. I think you could call most disorders spectrum disorders, you know, blood, high blood pressure is a spectrum disorder, you know? Um, so 
when I sort of, you know, think about, well, what, why, why would somebody have, you know, have, have used that terminology? Um, I think that spectrum sort of implies kind of a linear scale from, you know, mild, medium to severe, Mm -hmm. um, is is sort of one dimension along which you can have that spectrum. Um, but I think that there's, it's sort of like um, an asterisk. There's, you know, there's many of those lines um, that uh, that sort of uh, signify severity of, um, you know, challenges with, uh, you know, reading faces. Another one of those lines can be challenges with sensory processing. And so you sort of take all of this sort of patchwork of symptoms that a person has. And you can imagine that along any of those symptoms, you can have mild, moderate, or severe. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you do the math, like you take all of those sort of probabilities and you multiply them together and you're going to have, you know, uh, millions of combinations. Um, and so I, I don't think of the spectrum as being a single linear sort of uh, autism as a monolithic thing. I think of the spectrum as being each of the parts of a person's, you know, being. Yeah. Yeah. How about in terms of the appearance of autism in the human population generally, just speaking from an evolutionary, mm-hmm. through an evolutionary evolutionary lens, I don't know the literature on this and i'd be curious to know your thoughts on this what has caused this to continue to exist in the gene pool in the first place right was there something about these characteristics that were advantageous to groups at some point in evolutionary history and that is what's triggering it or is it completely unrelated in your judgment i think that um uh, so my first answer, like the first thing that comes to mind is, yeah, there's a lot of advantages to having autism and to having people with autism in our culture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, today it's tech, but you could imagine that, you know, a thousand years ago, it was some other type of thing that, you know, rec- that, that benefited from having, you know, that skill set. Um, but then I also think about how... Um, you know, a lot of the changes that we see in the genes are new. They're they're brand new for the person. And so it's not necessarily that it's being passed down from generation to generation, but rather that it pops up sporadically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know if sort of those evolutionary pressures apply to those types of genetic conditions. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that, you know, regardless of that, I think that uh, it, it makes sense to want to have people with autism in society, whether that's today or, you know, from the dawn of time. For sure. Yeah. The last question I want to ask you is about is about the future and, and what you think are areas of potential improvement for the culture and the way that we um, deal with people who are autistic and for autistic people themselves. How do you think about 10, the next 10, 20, 30 years, both as a scientist and as an American, how how can we be better in the way that we 
are dealing with with autistic people or people who are on the spectrum and in in your judgment as a culture and then also just scientifically what do you think are some areas that of potential benefit for these mm-hmm. these people so um one thing that is on my mind a lot um <laughs> is is not the answer you were looking for but is is racism hmm. um and i think about how many people who actually have autism are diagnosed with uh, conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder, you know, sort of they're, they're considered bad kids. Um, when in reality their brain just processes information differently. And so I think that as we sort of learn to appreciate, um, our, you know, racial biases, and we sort of start to understand what the true, um, you know, prevalence is of this disorder in our population, we're going to be really surprised to find that it's a lot higher than we actually even thought. Yeah. And so I think that when, when that happens or as that happens, we are going to start to really Think about how we can change our practices. And so how would we do that? So I think one would be, um, you know, for, say, job interviews, um, taking the pressure off of that one-on-one real-time interaction and, you know, appreciating that that might not be everybody's, you know, forte. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that sort of as we raise our level of empathy um, in general um, for people who don't look like us and don't act like us, um, that we're going to see more people in positions of leadership who are, you know, out (laughs) as having a disorder, you know, out as having autism, out as having, you know, depression or bipolar disorder. And that's okay. And, and we can, we will grow as a society to realize that, you know, we, we don't need to hide these things. We don't need to um, discount people for one aspect of their being when they have so much else to offer. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think it really comes down to um, increasing empathy and starting to see people who don't look like us and don't act like us in leadership positions. Yeah. Thank you so much for the time, Audrey. And I I wish you all the luck. I got a little bit of a tour before we started recording and I I know you guys are doing important work here. So um, thanks for all of the research that you're doing and, and just having this conversation to try to increase some awareness. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it. Same. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show.